Welcome to the Australian Hiker Podcast, Australia's longest running hiking podcast downloaded over three quarters of a million times in over 145 countries and providing you with an Australian perspective on all things hiking. We're your hosts, Tim and Jill Savage. This is episode 222 of the Australian Hiker Podcast. And in this week's episode, we talk about the East Gippsland Rail Trail, reality versus expectations. We hope you enjoy. Before we get into today's episode, if you'd like to help support Australian Hiker and this podcast, there are a couple of ways that you can help us out. Firstly, by subscribing on your podcast host of choice so that each episode is available as soon as it's published. And if you have the opportunity, leave us a five-star review. Another way to support us is go to the Australian Hiker website at www.australianhiker.com.au and click on the supporters page and buy us a coffee. You can do a one-off donation or become a monthly supporter. All donations are greatly appreciated and help us to continue producing this podcast and blog. Now let's get on to today's episode. In late May and early June of 2022, I undertook a journey on the East Gippsland Rail Trail. This was a 106-kilometre walk over a four-day period, and in episode 220, I talked about what my expectations were going to be on the trip, and then in episode 221, I released a series of recordings of my on-trail experience. In this episode, I discussed reality versus expectations, and how I actually found the trip. Now, as I mentioned in previous episodes, the reason for me going through and doing this trip was that I had originally planned on finishing off my human hovel trip, and I discovered fairly close to my departure time that they were doing work on one of the campsites, and I was unable to complete the journey as I'd expected, so I had to transfer it to a later time in the year. What this meant was I already had time booked off for leave. Uh, It was pretty much fixed. So I was left looking for a trip that was approximately 100 kilometres in length and was also easy to access that didn't take too long to get to or from the actual trailhead. I'd had rail trails on my list of things to consider looking at and hiking over the years. And after looking at the options available to me, they just seemed like a good option and a good choice. Prior to starting my journey on the East Gippsland Rail Trail, I had a number of expectations about what I would see and what my experiences would be like. And the first one is, is this real hiking? And I think one of the things I talked about in the the previous episode was I wouldn't really class this as bushwalking. We pretty much, when you do this trip, you're walking down a disused rail corridor And with a couple of exceptions, all the rail infrastructure has gone. So you are walking on a formed road, uh, albeit in most cases uh, dirt and in some instances bitumen. And you are walking through bushland, but also walking through rural areas as well. So I think from my perspective, I wouldn't class this as a bushwalk, but I certainly would class this as hiking. And as I said, 106 kilometres over four days, I certainly felt it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, I, I guess, you know, there was a certain amount of bush life that you walk through um, along the way, having listened to the the uh, On Trail podcast. But it was a very different kind of experience uh, to, I think, what we would uh, classify as a bushwalk. 
And as you said, this podcast is about your experience and, and whether it met reality. The first thing I'd be interested in hearing about is the weather. Prior to starting this trip, just the way that the weather forecast was going, I pretty much expected to have four days of rain. Now, there's nothing much you can really do on this. I could have said, well, I'm not going to bother going walking at all. I'll wait until a sunnier period. That would have potentially been been an option. But for me, I had a fixed holiday period. And I think realistically, as long as you've got the the wet weather gear to keep you warm and comfortable, it'll certainly be fine. So over the four days, the first day I pretty much had rain on and off for pretty much the entire day. And I, uh, when I started the trip, I, start, I was just about to start walking off and thought, this isn't just mist, this is starting to become light rain. And I thought, okay, well, I'll just, before I even left the car park uh, where I'd left my car, I went through and put all my rain gear on, put my pack cover on, and within a matter of 10 to 15 minutes, it was raining quite steadily. The second day uh, was pretty much uh, I expected to be the same, uh, but ended up with a very sunny sort of day. It was quite enjoyable. Third day, uh, I expected to have rain for pretty much most of the whole day, uh, and I didn't. Uh, so that was a bit of a pleasant surprise. Hey, you're doing two out of three. <laughs> and the last day, I pretty much started off with rain. So I had rain on and off through the day, but it was probably, as far as rainy days were concerned, I'd place it third uh, after the two sunny days that I had. Temperature-wise, uh, this was pretty much late autumn, early winter in uh, in Victoria, and it wasn't anywhere near as extreme that what, what I would have expected in the city of Canberra, which is where I'm from. Uh, but certainly the daytime temperatures, I think, really got up to about 12, 13 degrees, although the apparent temperatures were often a lot colder than that. And I think every day, in fact, it was every day that I did this walk, I pretty much had my rain jacket on, if not to keep me dry, uh, to actually keep me warm and keep the, the wind chill off me as well. Yeah, and I guess the rain was to be expected. Um, one thing is you're out, out in the uh, weather and the other one is um, we've had a lot of rain on the east coast of Australia this year. So it'd be pretty, you would have been pretty lucky uh, not to have any at all. So, yeah, overall the weather was fine. I mean, you know, it, I think if you had to pick a perfect time of the year to go and do this, I would probably say spring or, uh, <laughs> uh, or early autumn when you know, the temperatures aren't too hot because you can actually get extremes. So, I mean, the, the maximum extremes in this sort of area can be high 30s into low 40s at, at times. Uh, but looking at the weather averages, it's normally a, a much milder sort of environment because while it's not on the coast, it's very much close to the coastline. Uh, so it's being impacted by coastal weather patterns as well as the mountain weather patterns uh, from the west. Uh, so, Tim, you said that you'd explored a whole range of um, options in terms of getting to the trail and uh, when you were choosing this one, you wanted something that was reasonably accessible. Um, I know when you were uh, doing the initial planning, you... Uh, the worst case scenario was almost a day of travel uh, to the trailhead, uh, but you ended up uh, driving down and, and spending about four hours driving. This was a bit of an odd one for me. I'm so used to spending three, possibly even four hours travelling for a day walk or a weekend walk, but for some reason I just had it in my mind that, okay, this is going to be Victorian-based. 
the logical thing to do was to fly to Melbourne and then get a train to Barnsdale and then get a coach to Orbost. Planes, trains and yeah. automobiles. Uh, and then finish the walk in Barnsdale, uh, coach back, uh, train back to Melbourne and then fly back to Canberra. And that would have pretty much spent almost about seven to eight hours on two separate days getting to and from the uh, the trailheads. And someone just when I was talking to someone about this, they just said, oh, we used to drive down there for work. And I thought, oh, maybe I'll look at a driving option. And really from Canberra, it was a four-hour drive for me. Uh, so it was a much quicker option. Uh, it meant I had a bit more versatility. Uh, and but I just needed to find somewhere to actually leave the car. But driving and, and leaving the car there really didn't make sense on this walk, at least from my perspective. So I think you know if you if you're flying from interstate, uh, you know Queensland or Western Australia or South Australia, yeah, the planes, trains, and automobile process would be a good option to do. But certainly, you know, if you live in uh, Victoria or the southern half of New South Wales, driving is a pretty valid sort of option. Well, on the last day, you did have to get a coach back to Orbost uh, to uh, stay the night and collect the car. Um, that did mean that you had to get to. Uh, Bansdale in, you know, by a particular time of the day. Um, was that a bit stressful? Potentially it was. I wasn't too sure how long it was going to take me to actually get there. And it's sort of, um, yeah, I, I used the first day, which is my second, second biggest walking day, to gauge how fast I was moving. Uh, and, I, you know, and I think I, was, I averaged about 5.3, 5.4 kilometres an hour. So I decided that uh, I wanted to be in Barnsdale uh, roughly around about two hours earlier than my coach was due. Uh, otherwise, I was likely to have to overnight in Barnsdale and then get a, a bus back the next morning. I think morning. it's Bansdale, isn't it? Yeah, Barn- <laughs> yeah Barnsdale, Bansdale. <laughs> I've, I've We've been, been corrected. I've been told, told both by people who live in the area, so it's interesting. Uh, but the coach ended up working well. I... Uh, I ended up getting there with plenty of time. I mean, all I had to do for the last day is average around about four kilometres an hour. And we'll talk about the gradient in a moment. Uh, but I found that actually quite easy. But it was more the psychological stress of I need to be there in plenty of time so I don't miss my, my coach. And the next thing we'll talk about is the accommodation, which um, you had planned to uh, tent and uh, also do – uh, cabin every every now and then, but there were some, um, I guess, irregular things, difficulties in contacting the uh, the host sites and uh, so on. Yeah, originally I planned on pretty much tenting all the way, and I'll, I'll probably start it going back even further. Once I got to uh, Orbost itself, my criteria was with the hotel that I was staying at on the night before my walk, and then the night that I was going to return to Orbost was I wanted somewhere that was happy for me to leave my vehicle there for the four days I'd be doing the walk. Uh, and I also wanted the short, shortest walking distance from my hotel to the trailhead. And I ended up staying at a, a little hotel, which was which was the Orbost Boutique Motel, which was just off, just off a side road off the highway. Uh, and that meant I can virtually just had a short walk down to the highway. And I was walking along the highway for a couple of kilometres before cutting inland to, to meet the trail itself, but it was great accommodation. You said, yeah, it was. It was, yeah, it wasn't the cheapest accommodation, but it was really good accommodation. So, uh, yeah, when you when you start a walk, when you finish your walk, you want to be able to just relax and and not think about it. Yeah, and when I came back, the heater had been turned on, so I came, <laughs> came back to a nice, nice, warm, tasty room. So it was good. 
But there are plenty of other options. You can certainly uh, stay in the caravan park. There are cheaper motels, uh, but it just depends, as I said, from my perspective. Logistically, it made sense because it was a shorter distance to the trailhead the next day. In relation to the first, second and third night on the trail, I had actually planned on tenting it. Uh, and uh, I'll talk, I'm going to talk about free camping in Australia in the next couple of episodes but really in Victoria, the options for tenting it are limited. You aren't allowed to camp on the rail corridor uh, legally. So what I mean by that is potentially that, you know, you could do it, but if someone comes and asks or a ranger comes and asks you to move on, you have no choice but to do it. And you can camp in state forests unless it's specified you can't do that. And I think there is one option along this trail where you could do it. Uh, so I was ending up staying at... Uh, commercial accommodation facilities. First night was Tostery, uh, and that was just on 32 kilometres for the first day walking. Uh, and they had a nice big open grassy paddock that had been mown quite well, uh, where I put my tent up. And I was actually thinking about getting a cabin, because they did have cabins, but there weren't any available that night. So I ended up tenting it, and I did have rainfall in the middle of the night, and it wasn't too bad. Second night, I was going to be staying in Nowa Nowa after a fairly short sort of day, which ended up being 13 kilometres, and I'll explain the distances in a moment. And uh, I ended up staying in one of the caravan parks with plan on uh, tenting it. And again, the weather conditions were, it, the apparent temperature was getting pretty cold. And while I was geared for that, I didn't want to arrive at lunchtime, sit in my tent for, uh, until sort of six o'clock the next morning. So I decided to get a cabin, and that worked really well. Uh, and then the third night, I was going to be staying in the caravan park in tent, uh, but the forecast was even for, even for colder conditions, so I ended up staying at the Bruthen Inn. So um, I really had the flexibility to do this, and certainly if you know what you're doing, you can plan to either tent or to stay in commercial accommodation, or if the ability is there, to stay in, in, in an inside sort of room. Now, I know people will often say, well, is this a real hike? Well, yes, it is. It's just providing different accommodation options. It's an interesting one, though, because um, I think this time of year it was probably a little bit hard to make contact with um, the various commercial operators, um, and so you really did need to plan ahead and make sure that you weren't um, going to be, you know, uh, leave the tent at home expecting to be able to get into a cabin when, as you said, there weren't any or you uh, weren't able to connect with anyone to book. Yeah, and I think if, uh, if I had gone during the summer months, during the middle of school holidays, Easter, any of the other school holidays might have been a different issue and I would have really been locked into what I'd gone through and booked. Uh, but certainly if you go outside of the busy periods, you've got a bit more flexibility. But as Jill said, I did have issues uh, getting hold of some of the accommodation options because they are in their really low periods uh, and they are, they, the offices weren't always manned. So, uh, Personed. It, Personed, yeah. Uh, but it worked out really well. So you mentioned uh, the trail surface uh, varied quite a bit. Um, well, not, not really. I mean, the, the guidebook from the Rail Trails Association or the Rail Trails Organisation actually says that, you know, at the Orbost end it's pretty much it, it's compressed gravel or compressed granite. Uh, so it's more, if you can think of a, a natural management road, but a really good condition that management road, you know, the, the surface was almost dead flat. 
And essentially what they'd done is they just pulled the rail infrastructure, the tracks and the sleepers off, and they'd left the corridor there. Uh, so you were pretty much walking down a, uh, a, not a double lane management road, but it was almost that sort of width. Uh, it was very flat. Uh, and once I got to, in close to some of the towns, it would often be compressed gravel. Uh, and certainly by the time I got to Nicholson and Barnsdale at the other end of the trail, it was compressed gravel and bitumen. And it actually looked like they were going to bitumen a much bigger section leading out of Barnsdale. Uh, Disticated for the local bike riders and the local walkers. Uh, so, But overall, there were a couple of areas on the track where severe weather had washed some areas away and the conditions were more akin to a, a walking track where you had to walk around a couple of small rough areas, but it was really, really well set out track. So easy walking and um, enjoyable walking? Yeah, and I think the other thing from my perspective is I hadn't really thought about this, and, and it was something that I looked at to, as I finished the trip. Um, you look at the map of the elevation changes and think, oh, yeah, this is pretty hilly. It goes up and down all those over these hills. And then when I looked at the Rail Trail website, they said uh, trains need to have a gradient uh, of no worse than 1 in 40. So for every 40 meters, 40 meters there's a 1-meter incline uh, or better. Uh, and apparently for train stations, it's 1 in 100. And what that means is if the train is just sitting there, it's not going to be going downhill because, because of gravity. And I think there are, that you really couldn't, uh, in most cases, tell there was any change in gradient. It was almost like I could see the longest stretch I think I could see uh, visibility-wise was probably two, two and a half kilometres long. Wow. Uh, and it almost, you know, if I was lucky, maybe there might have been a metre change over that whole period. Yep. So if you don't like hills, uh, <laughs> this is the one for you. This is the best walk in Australia to do. There's no doubt about it. The only time I had steep areas where some of the old bridges had been destroyed from the fires, I think it was in about 2011, and you had to bypass that. You'd go down over a creek, over a, a, a concrete culvert, and then back up the other side. Uh, and that might have been for a distance of 80 or 90 metres. Uh, and then it was back a bit to back to being flat again. There are a couple of very small sections where you almost bypass the rail trail. So you, you think, okay, I'm going straight ahead and it'll take you slightly off that and you'd go on an adjacent management road because the rail trail corridor looked like it had turned into a creek. So rather than repairing or fixing that, they'd gone through and... Uh, uh, just diverted you. Just diverted, yeah. And, you, and, that's, and, when you, and then you really were on management road. Uh, but it was, as I said, it was about as flat as you can imagine any trail. So, as I said, you know, the, I think the minimum uh, altitude was nine metres. I think the maximum was about 129 metres. Uh, and as I said, the change in gradient was so slight, you just did not notice it. And I think from my perspective, from a walking issue, it meant that uh, I could really just go into autopilot. You know, you were on this nice wide road. It was really obvious where you were going. Uh, I'll talk about signage in a moment as well. Uh, but you know, it just allowed you to walk at a fairly steady pace uh, and also to cover big distances quite comfortably. You weren't having to slog uphill or downhill. Uh, it just means you could maintain that pace quite comfortably. 
And certainly from my perspective, I haven't walked as fast on a hike uh, since 2018 towards the end of the Bibbleman track when I've built up five weeks worth of fitness. So again, you can, you can certainly plan on going a bit faster. Even in my local area, the Australian Alpine area, when I'm walking through uh, Namiji National Park and Kosciuszko, I plan on walking about 3.75 kilometres per hour. And on this track, it was four kilometres an hour and better quite comfortably. And you said you were going to talk about the uh, distances. I uh, got the impression that they varied a little bit. Yeah, so the rail trail uh, guidebook said this is a 94-kilometre trail. Yes, it is. But there's a couple of things that sort of throw you out through there. The trail itself starts in Numerella, which is just outside of Orbost. And in fact, it's about four and a half kilometres outside of Orbost. I could have stayed at Numerella. I could have left my car there. But then when I got my bus back, I would have gotten to Orbost and then had a four and a half kilometre walk back to my car. So, or I would have had to get a taxi. So it was just easier to start the walk from Orbost to finish at Barnsdale at the coach and bus station. And by doing that, I picked up that sort of distance. Uh, so the first day, I ended up doing 31 and a half, or just over 31 kilometres. Second day, 13 kilometres, and it wasn't supposed to be that long, but you hit the town and the accommodation is not right on the trail. So I ended up walking off trail probably eight or 900 metres to the uh, caravan park and then had to walk back another 500 metres back onto the track again the next day. So that was another one and a half kilometres on top of the, the four and a half. Day three, same sort of situation. I ended up walking off trail to the Bruthen Inn. Not a long distance, but it was uh, off trail, so that required going off trail and coming back on trail again. So the last day, which according to what I worked out pre-trip, which was supposed to be 30.5 kilometres, when I got on trail said it was 32 kilometres, and that's what it ended up being. But the problem is the trailhead in Barnsdale is two kilometres from the train station. <laughs> so I either had to I either had to ring up a taxi and get them to take me two kilometres to the train station or walk. So that last day ended up being 34 kilometres. So all up, I ended up walking 106 kilometres. And I also had a couple of other areas where there was a couple of little side routes that took you back up 100 or so metres to over the top of the bridges. Uh, and, I and I did a few of those as well. So even though you look at the guidebook and it says 94, in reality, you're looking really as a tripper about 106 kilometres. And the thing that uh, people are most interested in, what did you see? Okay. Now, I suppose I grouped this into, but prior to this trip, I sort of looked at three separate things. One was people. And I expected to see people on the Saturday and the Sunday, given it was a weekend, and no one on the Monday and Tuesday. And in fact, it ended up being the opposite. <laughs> Saturday was raining. I saw nobody. <laughs> Sunday, it was sunny as I walked into Nowa Nowa, uh, but that was only 13 kilometres. I saw nobody until, in fact, I saw nobody until I actually got to the caravan park. Even walking through town, I saw cars, but no one walking. Uh, Sunday, I came across a bike rider on the way from Nowa Nowa to uh, Bruthen. Uh, and he was riding from now and now to Brutham, which was supposedly 28 kilometres, to have his coffee and vanilla slice and then ride back <laughs> and ride back That's again. That's a thing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah That's so, why you ride the bike, so you can have the vanilla slice. So apparently he does this every day. Uh, but again, only one person. And it was a bit of a surprise. I heard something and turned around and here was this bike rider coming up behind me. And then on the last day from Brutham into Barnsdale, 
I lost count at the number of bike riders. Uh, there were they were out everywhere. People in lycra, people just doing recreational riding. Uh, there were a lot of people taking advantage of the the facilities, and I saw a number of walkers. But these were local walkers, people that are walking a couple of kilometres from one road, walking down to the next road and turning around and coming back. Uh, I didn't see anyone else walking the entire trail. And there may have been some people ahead of me and behind me, but I certainly didn't come across anyone as I was uh, doing the trip itself. Well, given the uh, quality of the trail and the, the, the very low gradient, you know, not, no, no hills, uh, would have been perfect for cyclists. Well, it, it would. There's no doubt about that. And it would have been pretty pretty easy to, to, to power along quite comfortably. Uh, old rail infrastructure, I certainly expected to see that. Uh, and this was a bit of a funny trip for me. Usually I research a trip to death. I know exactly what I'm going to come across and when and where. Uh, and in this instance here, um, probably the, the bridge I was most looking forward to seeing was the Stony Creek Trestle Bridge. And I didn't bother looking where it was. I knew I'd come across it, but I wanted it to be a surprise. It's not at Stony Creek. Well, it probably is, but I had no, <laughs> I had no idea where Stony Creek was. And why I had, had a, a basic map, uh, again, navigation-wise, you don't need to know how to navigate to do this trip. Uh, all you need to do is pay attention. Uh, and even then, you, you know, that's to stop you getting run over when you're crossing the roads more than the, the navigation perspective. Uh, so the Stony Creek Trestle Bridge was just amazing. It was, you know, it was the highlight of the whole trip. It was the highlight of day three. Uh, it was an enormous bridge. It was about 20 metres at its highest point. They'd gone through and put this thing in, uh, cutting down trees from a local area and putting this thing together all on site. Uh, so it's pretty amazing, the engineering uh, in those days. You know, these days people prefab and bring everything in. Those days they just chop them down and build it uh, from what's there. Yeah. Uh, and that's all so they can maintain this this gradient across the whole track. And that's the iconic image for the trail, isn't it? Yeah, and it's the one I use for the, the written write-up of this walk as well as the, the previous podcast, episode 221. Uh, it really was amazing. amazing. The uh, images and the videos do not do this justice. Um, you know, I, I, I probably spent around about half an hour there and I came across it from the Orbost end and the information signage is up the other end of the bridge. So when I got to the other end, there's all this lovely information signage, there's a toilet facilities, uh, there's a little car park, so you can actually drive in from the road to see this. And even though I've got a heritage background, if I had have seen the sign to it, I probably wouldn't have thought much about it. So I'm certainly glad I did this walk for, just for that bridge alone. There was other bridges that had been damaged to a lesser or a greater extent due to the fires in 2011. Pretty much all the bridge tops were being damaged and you couldn't walk across the old bridges because you'd end up falling through. Uh, they were designed for trains, not for pedestrians, and a lot of the timber was rotting on the top anyway. Uh, the Stony Creek Trestle Bridge had been, uh, the last time it was used it was in 1988, was when they shut the line down to Orbost. Uh, but it was still in reasonably good condition. But you could see there were gaps and holes up up the top. You could actually approach the top, and in most of the cases they had fences to stop you accessing them, although there was one instance where there was nothing really stopping me. Uh, well, I couldn't have got across the bridge, but there was a big hole on the uh, my side of the fence, uh, so you had to be careful about not, not approaching too close, otherwise you would have slid down the slope. 
lots of rail infrastructure, and I think certainly from this trip alone, I learned more about historic rail infrastructure than I ever thought possible. Uh, just because <laughs> that's you, a good thing. There's good information signage along the way. You're seeing this old infrastructure, uh, and it's interesting to see how it goes. And I think from a point of view, rail infrastructure, it's more terrain than anything else. I initially, when I started this walk on day one, I almost without realising it, had gone through this middle of this cutting, which was 10 or 15 metres high, and didn't notice it because the gradient hadn't changed. And then I realised that, hang on a sec, these aren't trees to the side of me. There's this big slope. Uh, and, you know, you'd, you know, this was halfway through. So, the as I said, the gradients were so smooth, you really didn't notice. There were trees there, and all of a sudden there were vegetation, and uh, uh, there was vegetation, and then... Uh, slope, so it was quite quite funny that I didn't actually pick this up. Yeah. And originally, those you know cuttings would have been all done by hand. Yeah, yeah, they would have been. You know, the uh, uh, most of these bridges were at least a hundred years old. Uh, they might have used dynamite. I'm sure they probably did, uh, but they still had to dig it and take it out. So it wasn't you know it wasn't they weren't using bulldozers to do this. It was by hand and 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 horse and carts. So yeah. it would have been an interesting process. Uh, bushland, uh, the all-bust end of the trail, which was I was quite aware was the bushier end of the trail, uh, and it certainly was. Um, and they have gone through and done some revegetation along the track. So for the first two, two and a half days, you're walking through forested and treed areas. You were seeing farms from time to time, uh, but it was almost like, as I said, walking through a management trail uh, through some of the national parks. Uh, and then on the last day, it very much became rural, uh, and in fact, the last half of the last day, it was almost walking into Orbos for the last 16-odd kilometres and you're walking through, you're you're starting to merge with the highway and you were uh, very much walking through farmland. One thing that I did pick up through that with farmland, seeing some of the old farm infrastructure, so uh, some of the farms that used to grow corn, they had the big corn silos where they held, held all the corn cobs, uh, some of the uh, the old hop farm infrastructure uh, and hops are used for beer and other things but uh, beer is probably the best known thing uh, and they had some signage up there uh, as well as you know cattle farm sheep farm so it was it was interesting to see that I always find that quite interesting yeah and the lambs you, you yeah, like the lambs I, I love watching lambs play uh, young cows they're fine but young sheep I'm quite happy to watch them play for ages uh, and then plant and animal life, I didn't expect to see a lot of flowering plants, you know, given them being it's right on the start of winter. Uh, I did see some, uh, some flowering plants, including some banksias, some pacris, hibertias. Uh, and I think, again, if you did this in early to mid-spring, it would be really quite amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, animal life, I saw one kangaroo by mistake. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it tripped itself up going through a fence, and that's the only reason I saw it. Uh, one rabbit. Uh, one black lyrebird, and again, it was only because I was sitting there recording the podcast, looking down the road, that I saw this black male lyrebird running across the road quite quickly. What there was was lots of birds. Um, I have never seen so or seen slash heard so many kookaburras on any walk I've ever done. They were everywhere, and again, without fail, as soon as I get my phone out, as soon as I get my recorder out, they stop laughing. Uh, and I'll put them away again and they start up again. So. That's because they were laughing at you, Tim, yeah, not with so. you. <laughs> so lots of kookaburras, lots of bird life, lots of parrots, uh, as in you know, cockatoos and things like that. So birds in general were the main wildlife on this trail.
Now, from my perspective, I think as a, as a general finish off on this trail, you can do this trail cycling, you can do it walking and you can ride by horses. If you're doing this as a cycling trail, I'd probably say a three-day trail was probably a good way to do it. And again, the gradient is so slight, you know, unless providing your backside is going to cope on being doing those sort of distances over three days, it would be a very easy sort of bike ride. As I mentioned, the camping options really are limited. So from a walking perspective, uh, if you are not camping illegally, it forces you into a situation where you need to cover the distances that I did. So the first day, I was quite comfortable with covering that 30, 32-kilometre distance. In fact, I finished at about just before 3 o'clock, and I could have kept on walking into an hour now, but that would have given me a 40-kilometre day, which was not something I'd planned on doing. Next day, I could have combined now and now with uh, the trip through to Bruton, but that would have given me a roughly a 38-kilometre day. Uh, and again, it would have been too big from what I was looking at. So that's why I had that short day on day two. Day three, 28 kilometres, again, was fine. Day four, 34 kilometres. So I think from this specific trip, it's aimed at someone who was quite comfortable in doing big days, uh, you don't have to carry a heavy pack. My fully loaded pack, including water and food, was a total of 13 kilos at its heaviest. Uh, and because of the time of the year, I wasn't drinking a lot of water. I just wasn't sweating at all. Uh, and there were some uh, water top-up points along the way. And also there were some good um, food options um, and places to buy food as well. So that that means that you can sort of reduce the amount of food that you're carrying as well. Yeah, first day, first day you really need to do lunch and dinner. You need to bring that with you. Second day you need to have breakfast, but you can get lunch in now and now and dinner in now and now if you need to. Uh, third day, uh, you're, you need to uh, uh, you can potentially buy breakfast at now and now before you leave, as long as you're not leaving too early. Uh, lunch you need to have with you. Dinner you can do at Bruton, which is what I did. Even though I was planning on camping and I had the food with me, I decided I wanted a pizza in the pub. <laughs> um, and the last day, really, you've got to have breakfast. And, in fact, the, the pub at Bruton actually provided breakfast, uh, and I just had uh, a bit of bit of food there plus what I'd brought with me, uh, but you would have needed lunch. And, in fact, my lunch on the last day was at 3 o'clock when I got into uh, uh, Barnsdale. I had a late lunch, uh, and you could have actually uh, had your lunch slash dinner uh, at uh, – well, I think, I think in all honesty, you, you need to have lunch with you on the last day, yeah. but you, you, you could always get dinner, dinner. in at all boss. So um, you do need to take that into account and cater for that. I think there are a number of other rail trails, and I'm talking to Damien in episode 219 from Rail Trails Australia. I think he said there was 144 rail trails from memory, uh, and you could have picked other options. And, in fact, there was a couple of other trails that I was looking at this one just suited my needs uh, the best and I didn't mind the big days, but some of the others may be better if you don't want the bigger days and want to have a bit more breaks as you go through. Um, so overall, I think from my perspective, one of the questions people always say is, is this worthwhile doing? If I had to say, well, I'm going to do the overland track or I'm going to do a rail trail, I'd probably say do the overland track. Um, you know, it's a hundred, Or if I'm going to do... The Twelve Apostles Walk, uh, or the or a, a rail trail, I'd say do the Twelve Apostles Walk. Uh, but 
it's from my option, I didn't have the ability to do any of those other trials. And in fact, a lot of the other trials were having repair work done on them or for whatever reason, I wasn't able to get to them. And it, the round trials just made uh, or just provided an option to provide a whole new batch of trials that are accessible. Now, a lot of them are much shorter. Uh, there are a couple. That's one of the longest ones, about 160-odd kilometres. Yeah. Yeah. I did actually look at the potential of doing an add-on walk on this one, and I decided not to. Uh, and it was wasn't a, it was a good thing because I got to the turn-off point to that add-on walk, and the trail was closed due to weather damage. Uh, and I may not have picked that up until I had actually got to that point. So the big question, Tim, are you a convert to rail trails? Yeah, I think I am. I think um, you know, you know, if I had the option of doing one of the the amazing bushwalks around. You know, I'd certainly prefer to do those, but I will do more rail trails. I think they're quite good. Um, it gives you the ability, and one of the things I do like hiking by myself for is it gives me an ability to tune up and to just think. Uh, and because the navigation is so easy on this. And the, and the gradient. <laughs> the gradient. Yeah, it's very easy. You know, it, I won't say it's impossible to get lost. You have to be trying really, really hard to get lost on this track. The signage on it is excellent, uh, and in most cases, the signage and they almost put a—it's not a gate, but it's a gate system that forces you to go right then left, uh, and that says there's a road approaching. You're about to cross a road. Look out for cars, and that is done really well. So yeah, I think um, I definitely will do more rail trails in future. Uh, it you know it's the sort of thing where I can say right, I'm going to go down to the next one. I want to do is based around Albury. Uh, so I can whip down to Albury, do a three or four day or five day trail down there uh, and come back without too much thought. So there's good options, particularly in Victoria, uh, although it is starting to become more common in other areas, but Victoria is the real home for rail trails. Uh, and as as they eventually start releasing them and accessing them uh, in further afield throughout the rest of Australia, uh, of the distances I want, I you know, I'm not going to... I think for me, I do like the sort of the 75 to 100-odd kilometre trails uh, and there's less of those available and most of those do tend to be in Victoria. Well, I was a bit disappointed I couldn't join you, but uh, um, may, maybe we can do this one again some point in the future and discover some others together. I think definitely, as I said, it's as I said, it's um, it's not a natural bushwalk. You're not going to get solitude in the middle of the bush. Uh, but I certainly had solitude, uh, and, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was it was an enjoyable trip and one that I'm glad that I did. Okay, that's all for this week's episode. We hope you've enjoyed this expectations versus reality episode for the East Gapsland Rail Trail. Uh, have a look at the written write-up uh, and see if this is something that you might like doing as well. Uh, and included as part of that is a video which is about 13 minutes long, which includes video and images. Uh, that take you through the entire trip. That's all for me. Bye for now. And bye from me. Actually, the almost, which was the almost 